Welcome to the She Built This podcast, where we are sharing the stories of professionals and entrepreneurs who are on a mission to create the new norm by following their dreams and making them a reality. I'm your host, Emily Aborn, and together we are inspiring, growing, and giving you the tools you need to bring ideas to life so you can build whatever this means for you. Welcome back and welcome here, of course, for the first time listeners. My name is Emily Aborn and I'm a content writer as well as the owner and founder of She Built This, which is a women's entrepreneurship community. So I just got back from a trip to Maine and had a nice long weekend. That was Labor Day weekend and I have to say I'm feeling a little more organized and like back in the saddle. That was kind of like the last hurrah of summer. And it was fun and summer was fun, but now I'm like, all right, let's buckle up and get ready to get back to work. So to start off today, um, I thought I would tell you a little story. I call this one Burying the Lead. And it's about the time that I asked the wrong guy out. So this is about when my husband and I were first doing that awkward thing prior to dating when you want to make a date, but you're not really sure how. Now, In all fairness, uh, neither of us ever really asked the other one out. We just sort of had like this agreement going over Google chat when I was in France and he was living in North Carolina. I mean, that was my understanding of the situation and he never really argued about it and then eventually asked me to marry him. So I guess it all worked out pretty okay. Our relationship just sort of blossomed. Like we never really, no one ever really asked the other person out because I'm pretty sure that it's not 1990 anymore. But That said, it was a long road from the time that we first met and to the time that we first sat down and went on our first official dinner date together. When I met Jason, it was sort of like a half meeting. And then the second time was kind of like a three quarter meeting. And then finally, I had my moment. I had the chance for the 100% meeting. So Jason's sister, also known as my friend Sarah, um, had invited me to go to the Keene Pumpkin Festival with her and Jason and his their nephew, uh, my nephew, Desmond. And Jason had in tow with him his friend Matt. You got me so far? You got everybody straight? So anyway, we wandered around the Pumpkin Festival and we like got warm drinks from brew bakers in Keene. We went into some like cartoon... Uh, theater and watch some silly cartoon and we also walked around and checked out all the pumpkin carvings which is super fun the whole time I made sure not to appear too interested in Jason because I was scared so instead I made small talk with Matt I hung out with Sarah and Desmond a lot and I do remember that Jason and I had like one moment of a one-to-one conversation but I was so focused on not puking out my chai tea in front of him that I have really no recollection of how that conversation went down. So anyway, as I was leaving the pumpkin festival, I went up to Matt, of course, and asked, hey, what are you guys doing tonight? And I invited them, him specifically in that moment, to go listen to some local music because I wanted to go listen to the local music and I really wanted Jason to go listen to the local music with me too. Imagine it would be like our first slow dance. We could sail into the wind to the beat of Neil Young. Probably realistically, knowing myself back then, it was like a rusted root cover band. But anyway, 
my logic was to ask Matt because I was too scared to ask Jason directly. And Matt said he'd keep me posted, which I took as a no. And I was like, all right, (laughs) rejected. But here's the thing. The rejection didn't really hurt because it was really Jason that I wanted to ask. I just was shying away from it. And Jason and I still joke about it to this day about how I asked his friend out instead of him. So I was thinking about it the other night and I realized that I still do this so often when marketing myself and my products and my services, I bury the lead and I see other people do it too. We fail to give people clear calls to action. We don't tell them the next steps to take. We don't always show them the value in what we're offering. And just like asking someone out that you know is your soulmate, it can feel really scary to do it because it can feel like there's rejection waiting for you on the other side. So thank goodness that eventually we figured it out. And between you and me, I really like Jason a lot. So I'm happy how it all worked out. Um, So how do we not bury the lead? And how do we do so in a way that is direct, ethical, but also kind to the people that we're marketing to? I'm so glad you asked because that is what today's podcast is all about. Now, if you follow me on social media or you get my emails, you may have seen that I was offering a summer content writing bundle, which I packaged up all these goods for people from blogs to emails to social media posts, all into one nice little present with a bow on it. And I put the offer together one day because I was trying to streamline some of the things that before I was just sort of like a la carding and it was really confusing and all over the place. Anyway, the summer content bundle was a big, big hit and I've been having so much fun with them. I'm also happy to say that I actually ended up booking them all the way through September with content bundle clients, but I'm definitely going to be offering some sort of special for the fall too. So stay tuned if that was or is of any interest to you and you want to learn more. But here's the thing. I I always try to be transparent with you. And as a content writer and owner of She Built This, one of the things I've often struggled with is outright selling myself. And so when I wanted to offer those summer content bundles, there I was facing that fear, let's call it, once again. Now, I can share, promote, cheerlead, highlight just about everyone and anything under the sun. But when it comes to sharing my own value with potential clients or other people who can help me to spread the word, I'm often too scared worrying about what people think of me or, and and I worry that they're going to be like, oh my God, that Emily is so obnoxious. Who does she think she is? She's always selling something to me. Why would anyone need or want that? Or the worst, I don't like when they're confused about it. And then I feel like I'm just confusing, which I often am. So This past month of offering the content bundles was a really good exercise for me. It helped me to like sort of stretch those muscles and it helped me to learn to confidently share my products and services, which I realized after I started doing it, it was something a lot of people struggled with and genuinely wanted. I was actually doing them a favor. I also learned that it helped me to be really clear in showing what the actual offer was. And so when I was done, Um, I walked away with a lot of really useful data, which I'm going to use the next time I go to share it. I also just kind of like got over myself. You know what I mean? Like we're all in business to make money. So I have to present my offers and services or else no one will know they exist. And therefore, they'll always wonder if I'm just some self-made millionaire that doesn't have to work and can just sit around and run Facebook groups and record podcasts all day, which is not the case yet. So simultaneous to running these specials on the bundles, I was also relaunching the She Built This VIP group. We'll call it a gentle relaunch. It wasn't like aggressive. Um, 
I mean, an aggressive launch isn't really my style anyway, but that's why you've been listening to me blab on about the She Built This VIP group in pretty much every single episode for two months because I wanted to let people know that the VIP group price was going up on September 1st. And with that whole process, I learned another lesson. Uh, Number one, people are busy and they're off doing things outside of their businesses during the month of August and they can't think about these things and focus on these things. Maybe it just wasn't really the best time to do that. That said, the doors to the VIP group are always open. The price is just going up higher. So for me, it was never like some shisty, urgent selling tactic I was trying to use. I just wanted people to be aware that the price was going up. We're adding on more member perks and I'll be offering some more visibility opportunities that increase the value of the group. And in case, just in case, you're like, Emily, what on earth is she built this and VIP allow me just really fast. Um, We have a large free Facebook community with over 1400 women entrepreneurs. And then we have a subset, we'll call it a subculture community, which is the VIP group. It's a cozy knit, higher touch community with like all these member perks, workshops, um, interactive. It's very interactive and we have more stuff on the way. And the purpose of the VIP group is really just to help make doing business and building our dreams more fun because we're all doing it together and learning from each other. So the other thing that I learned during the gentle relaunching was just that no matter what, I needed to be true and authentic to how I like to offer products and services to people. And none of that is pretty much any of the standard launch tactics that you're going to see anywhere else. So do I have a thing or two to learn about doing a launch successfully? Yes, 100%. Will I ever do it in a super shicey, salesy um, overpromise under under deliver manner. No. Now, what does all of this have to do with today's guest? Once again, so glad you asked. Um, today's guest is Mia Francis Poulin, and she really understands a thing or two about selling online and the internet marketing world today. Words are Mia Francis Poulin's jam. She is a conversion copywriter, boy mom, and parks and rec enthusiast. She's the owner of The Copy House, which is a boutique copywriting agency for mission-focused service-based businesses, where she's on a mission to help her clients market their work authentically, ethically, and profitably. You're going to love this episode, I think. She shares with us not only how to not bury the lead, but also how to present what you're offering in an ethical human way that doesn't raise cortisol levels and play into people's fears and anxieties. So we talk about how when you do this, you actually give the agency back to your people and then they can make an informed decision for themselves and they end up as happier customers. So how do you do all this? Keep on listening because Mia is going to tell you exactly how. Hi Mia and welcome to the She Built This podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. This is going to be fun. It's like two people who focus on content talking about the thing that we love, which is content. (laughs) So I'm very, very (laughs) excited. Um, uh, So I know I read your bio before you joined us, but I would love to hear in your own words who you are and what it is that you do to help people. Yes. And so thank you for this question. Um, So... 
I own The Copy House, which is a boutique copywriting agency. We're not a full service agency. We're not doing everything under the marketing umbrella. Really, we know that our skill set is copywriting and our zone of genius is copywriting. And so we stay very much in our zone, uh, which feels really great because um, it means that we're able to go deeper and have um, you know, more meaningful conversations about copy content marketing strategy with our without having to feel distracted by doing all of the other stuff as well so more power to all of my friends out there that are running full service agencies i the way that we just want to do things at the copy house just all things copy and so what we do, how we help people, it's with content strategy, conversion copywriting, and then also launch support. So launching new digital products and services and helping them come up with ongoing content strategies that really nurture their audience, and then using conversion copywriting um, strategies and tactics, actually doing that for them so that they can authentically and ethically market their businesses. So um, yeah, it's been a blast over the last three years that we've been in business. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I get to play in words all day and, um, it's my favorite thing to do. It's truly the best thing ever. And I totally hear you more props to all of the people that are doing full-blown marketing agencies. Um, but congratulations for you for getting really clear on what your zone of genius is and what lights you up and what you really want to be focusing on. So I give you big, big, big props for that. Um, thank you for that. Yeah. Finally, my, uh, my dad said all those trips to borders and Barnes and Nobles as a child actually paid off. Cause now I'm, I can tell people I'm a professional writer. So there's that if, if anything, see, see that you don't need to be a starving artist to be a writer. Um, all right. So let's kind of talk about like what you see in the online marketing world right now. I think we're all honestly a little um, exhausted by it and disgusted by it. So what are you kind of seeing is broken in the online marketing world? Yeah. So the interesting thing is that my business has always been online. And since COVID, we've obviously had this push and rush of people who had to overnight take brick and mortar businesses or take their businesses and transform them into an online business. And I saw this, um, I'm going to talk about it in a second. I saw this from the start, but I think that a lot of people, as we have spent more and more time in digital spaces, they see just how icky. <laughs> it really, it really is in so many different ways. And so I wrote this, this manifesto and I put it up on my website. It always, it always tickles me because I wrote this thing in like 45 minutes, but it was just my pure thoughts, pure feelings on the state of online marketing and that it's, it's truly broken. And it's broken because it is based on an idea and a concept that in order to make money, make sales, we have to somehow psychologically manipulate mm -hmm. our people into action. It's based on things like FOMO, fear of missing out. It's based on raising cortisol levels and getting people to, to take action because they're coming from a place of scarcity. And it plays on fears. You know, It plays on what are the things that we are experiencing right now and what is the pain that we're looking to truly avoid. And I I just feel like from a from an ethical moral point I I didn't didn't feel good to market that way it didn't feel good to give clients assets that 
that supported that methodology. And so I really started doing the deep work of thinking about how can we do copywriting differently? How can we do marketing and messaging differently? And so, yeah, I would love to talk to you about that, that more too. Yeah. I mean, I see it a lot in entrepreneurial circles where people feel really awful when they get off of social media. And it's for a number of reasons, but I think a lot of it is that they are, people are tapping into those fear centers and honestly, probably sometimes even those trauma points in their life and making them feel things that are making them compare themselves to another person or feel like, oh my God, I'm never, you know, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. Um, And I think that that is like, I mean, that's the classic quote unquote pain point that we see every single place tap into their pain points. You know, that's like one of the the phrases of marketing, Um, but it leaves you walking away feeling I mean, I mean, it's causing all kinds of mental health issues, but I think it has really caused people to walk away from social media feeling really, really icky. And I know a lot of people just completely are like, I can't do it. I can't be on it because this is what I'm seeing day in and day out. Right, right. And and there's there's two there's two points on this. One is that we have forgotten how to in business, how to treat real humans as from a place of being a real human, right? We we have this idea of the faceless lead and getting people into your pipeline and just kind of ushering these units of of sale, right? Like the lifetime value of this individual person. We focus on moving them through the pipeline and extracting as much value as we can out of the out of the unit, right? Not having conversations with real humans. You know, when we think about how business was done, say, before the internet, right? You had people meeting face-to-face, having conversations in a a longer, maybe a longer timeline, right, to close the sale, and sometimes shorter. You know, you go to a grocery store, you meet the the clerk who checks you out, and they say, have a nice day. But we've lost that, that human element. And so that's one part of it, is that the humanity in marketing is has been really, really reduced and overshadowed. It with this, just the language we use, right, about leads and and you know moving them through the pipeline. Yeah, and and I want to. I mean, this is on your website, but something I also want to talk to is how like we have this urgency mindset where it's always like act now, act now, act now, or this is going to be gone tomorrow. Like it's just really like stressful when you're marketed to in that way, you know, and all those like ticking timers that are on people's websites, only two more hours. Um, I just find it, it's, it's very overwhelming and, and you're right. It takes out the humanness of it. It's like, well, you're just another number to me. So so you better buy right, now. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, and the other thing about it that people, I think people fail to realize is that it really doesn't do the customer any, any good. And it doesn't do you as the business owner any good. If you're, if you're getting people in from this place of, I got to act right now, otherwise I'm going to miss out. Right. Cause what happens on the other side of that is people come down from that, from that heightened sense of, of being right. They come down from that they end up thinking about, okay, what in the world did I actually just buy? (laughs) Like, what did I get myself into? And then they have resentment and regret rather than them them coming into that conversation, coming into that sales decision from a place of feeling empowered and like, okay, this is the decision I really want to make. And I'm excited about this all the way through the program. So yeah, that's the other part of it. You got customers in your, in your, in your net, right? You have the people 
right? But you are they really happy? Are they feeling excited about their their buying decision? Maybe so, maybe no. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, it it's like, well, I didn't have time to like research it and make sure this is what I wanted because I just had to act now. There's so many feelings that come, like that buyer's remorse feeling when you feel like you were overpromised to. Um, just because it was so stressful to have to act like in the moment. So or, or um, you're being sold to like kind of aggressively, like this event only is your only opportunity to work with me. Um, then you go home and you're like, yeah, I don't know if I would have done that otherwise. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So let's not deny, though, that at the same time, these tactics seem to be working. So I want to hear what you think works better because I do agree with you that connection and value is the way to go. But how can we make sure that like, you know, we don't want our marketing tactics to fail because we're not following along in this, in this uh, hamster wheel? Yeah, no. So that's the thing, right? Is there's this idea that success leaves clues. And yes, we see these things on the outside working, but sometimes those clues are red herrings, right? Like sometimes those clues are not, um, not all that they seem to be. Case in point, what we just discussed about, you know, that buyer's remorse, right? They get them in, but they're remorseful in a week, two weeks, three months, mm -hmm. right? So what I like to focus on instead of focusing on things like scarcity and these more manipulative tactics is to one, focus on the transformation that is available to them. You know, there's this, this marketing idea that people buy to avoid pain. They also buy to seek pleasure and they buy because of the person, right? And so often the easy, the easy decision, right, is to say, okay, let's needle that pain, right? And then they'll just be so miserable that they'll be like, I have to find the solution. Like this is, this is untenable, this place that I'm at right now. Right. But if you focus on the other side of that coin and, and, and tailor your messaging to focus on what are the things that they really want in the end and paint, painting the picture on what that could look like, that is just as effective, if not more effective, because it's more empowering than needling the pain point. Right. So that's that's point number one. Point number two is to also reevaluate your sales timeline, your, your sales process timeline. Right. How long does it take you to, to genuinely go from lead to closed within your sales process? And it's understandable and okay to say, okay, maybe it takes a few more touch points. Maybe it takes uh, rethinking how we get people into our high ticket program. Maybe we do offer some type of 15 minute FaceTime call where I'm talking with people as part of that process, right? The, the bottom line is, is that if you have to take that action so that people at the end feel, again, empowered, strong in their decision, feeling like they're making a good investment, Ultimately, that's a more powerful place than trying to shoehorn people into taking that action right away, right? And then also the other thing is just focusing really on how are you articulating the value of what you're presenting, right? What language are you using really knowing intimately your ideal clients and, and doing that market research? Yes, market research is not just the thing for big Fortune 500 companies. The solopreneur still needs to have a keen understanding of their market, of the people that comprise their market, and, and actually use the words that they're using 
and reflect it back to them in the content that you're writing, in the copy that you're writing, because that's how they feel that connection. That's how you're able to articulate uh, what it is that you're genuinely going to be doing with them within the the space of your program. Yeah, 100% and asking for that feedback from the actual clients that you work with and the actual people that you're already serving right now to help you discover what your what your real value is for them. Yeah, 100%. Um all right, so I know you have like these three big no-nos, like these three marketing tactics that are like, stop, just throw them away right now. (laughs) Stop. Mm -hmm. So what are those three and what do you recommend that people do instead? Yes. So the first are the deadline timers. If we could please leave that in 2019. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And that's not to say that if you have real constraints around something is, is available that you don't articulate that. Like for instance, if you have a cohort that's starting, you know, November 1st, right. Or whatever arbitrary date, and you got to get people in before that date. Great. But can we not have the clicking, the clicking timers and the, and the, and the numbers scrolling down? It's just all that's doing is just is just triggering people uh, on a psychological level. So let's leave that behind. The other one I heard the other day that's like really similar to that is when you're on a website and it's like so-and-so in New Hampshire just bought this item and and it just keeps oh, popping up, popping up, popping up. I'm like, that's kind of like an invade. I don't want to buy it because they're going to show my name. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, it's it's really, it, that kind of freaks me out a little bit, <laughs> to be honest. I don't like seeing that. Um, and I get it, right? It's like the social proof, right? Um, but uh, gosh, no, that that also, um, it's it's like the flashing light thing. It's the same psychology as, as casinos, really. You know, you enter a casino and I'm from New Orleans, so, you know, casinos are like part of our life down there, but you enter into a casino and it sounds like this beautiful notes of music and there's flashing lights over here and there's music playing over there. And it's just like, ding, 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 ding. And it makes you excited to take action and spend money. It's the same psychological foundation. So in case you didn't know, (laughs) now you know, now we know, um, Yes, now you know. Um, the the second thing that I would say is the the artificial inflation of of your value stack, right? So oftentimes we like to use value stacks to say, you know, three group coaching calls valued at forty thousand dollars, and then you know the, the you add it all up and you to basically price anchor what your offer is, which is as, which is significantly lower, right? And so I say let's not let's not do that, and here's why. One, it doesn't actually do you a service because unless you're selling, like genuinely selling those things and people can get those things, right? Like it's saleable. It's it's not very honest, right? Like if you can't a la carte buy three, you know, three group coaching calls at $40,000 if somebody wanted to do that, it's kind of dishonest, right? Because it's not, it's not a saleable thing. And also it's, it just, the way that we use that trick, right? It's, it's. Bottom line, it's just not honest, right? Like that's the bottom line. It's just not an honest way to to construct and price anchor. I'm so glad to hear you say this because on my website, I've had like a note to myself that's like value stack the benefits of the VIP group for like a month and I just haven't done it. And I'm like, all right, that's off the list. 
Well, and you know, unless it, I would say the caveat there is, is unless you have actual tangible offers that people could purchase a la carte, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you have a training that is on the, on the market for a hundred dollars and you're throwing it in for free. That's the, that's what, that's what I mean there. Unless it's an actual thing, then that's kind of the only exception. Right. Um, Cause that's just more so of of painting the package, right? So it's slightly different. It's a little nuanced, but it's slightly different. Um, and then the other thing would be the vanishing bonus. And so here, here's the thing, and it always kind of struck me as odd, right? Is we want to give people a benefit of taking action early, right? But what we forget is that we we promote so much, get this bonus because you're going to get this super exclusive thing if you take action before 12.59 or 11.59 tonight. But then the people who come at the end, they're like, I'm still paying the same amount, but I'm getting less value, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's actually, you're basically saying to the customers who come in at the end, as you have these bonuses that just kind of go away that, okay, your, your dollar is good, but you, you, I'm, I'm penalizing you for not taking action sooner. Right. So that's the, that's the third thing that I think let's just kind of leave that behind. An alternative to that, what I like to do is I like to just offer generalized bonuses that are available through the entire, um, the entire purpose of the cart being open, that entire period rather of the cart being open, I, I offer those bonuses for that cohort. So it's, it's, you're basically giving value, adding value to everyone who comes in and you're emphasizing the importance of joining in that window of time versus saying, if you take action with, you know, immediately on this webinar, I'm going to give you this high, high ticket thing, but the rest of y'all, oh, well, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you're talking about like not necessarily rewarding early birds, but giving everybody some sort of like perk or benefit, but it's just for that set group of people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because that's how we think about it. We think about it as rewarding early birds, but how the consumer often sees it or how it can be perceived is that we're actually penalizing the people who take more time to take action, which in turn disempowers people who take longer times to take to, to make a decision, right? Because that's the other part of it is that we have to respect that there are different types of buyers. There are people who naturally are going to take action right away, right? That's just their personality. That's how they make purchasing decisions, right? But there are other people who they need to see case studies or they need to see the social proof or they need to you know, hear the FAQs, right? Have their, their questions answered before they're ready to take that action. And all of that is okay. There are different types of buyers. We need to respect the different stages in the buying process, but instead tailor our content as we, as we launch, as we you know open the cart and nurture through that whole entire experience. We need to make sure that we are respecting that buying process, giving them the space to take the action when they're ready to, right? And then just have that, have the benefit, the added benefit of joining us in this window of time. Yeah. I really love that. And you're so right. We all buy at a different, like I like to take my time. I, I don't like to be an early adopter. I'm, I still haven't done a single reel and I probably won't for like, <laughs> give me another like five years and then maybe I'll do my first one. Um, so I hear you. It just takes some people longer to like hop on the bandwagon, you know? So that, that's a great, great, like perspective on that and and not just like it's again goes back to that timer and not giving people these like strict crazy deadlines that they're just going to regret their purchase later 
Um, all right, let's talk about like sales pages. And I know we've addressed a lot of this, but like, what are the things that you see on sales pages that just drive you batty? Oh my gosh. Oh, I could talk about sales pages all day. So let me be brief. <laughs> so the, the first thing is one, the above the fold section. So for the listeners who don't know, right, the above the fold refers to an old newspaper term. Basically, the newspaper is on the stand at the kiosk and you're walking by the street. It's that headline and that subheadline that really calls out to you on that first page of the newspaper before you open it up and all that good stuff. And so basically, it's this purpose is to get you to take action, right? My biggest pet peeve is wasted space on the above the fold because it is the most important part of your sales page. It is the part where when people go to your URL and they land on it. It's the first thing that they see, and it needs to be what I refer to as a complete thought. It needs to answer what's the compelling reason why people should either, at one, read, <laughs> read this sales page, but two, join your program. What's the transformation that you're actually providing them? And it needs to explain what exactly it is. Like, what exactly is this program? Who is it for? And giving them a direction to take with a button to get them to take take the action if they want to, if they're ready to do that. And so oftentimes people come to me because I have an offer where I, I audit sales pages and I, I review them and I give you the specific feedback. And oftentimes nothing drives me crazier than when I go to the URL and it's just like a big picture or a big logo with no context. And then people just kind of, we're just expected to scroll, right? doesn't work that way. People just bounce, right? Yeah. So it's not maximizing that that space above the fold is probably my number one. And I have plenty others, but that's my number oh, one. throw uh, some more thing. at us. That's a great one. <laughs> yeah. No. So my other one is not focusing on a singular transformation. So, and this kind of goes back more to, to offer planning, right? But, and, and listening to your people and using their language, but here's what that, that looks like. You get on a sales page and you're maybe on the who it's for section of the sales page, which, you know, we should all be explaining who exactly will benefit from your offer, right? And something like, so people will say something along the lines of, this is for, um, you know, women CEOs who want to um, make more money in their businesses or people who are in their nine to five and are looking to, you know, do X, Y, Z and lose weight and all this other stuff, you know, like very in, in unconnected right? Mm -hmm. Transformation and not finding out, like if it's okay, it's okay if you have a space that's for multiple types of people, right? In different stages of life or business, or maybe some are in corporate, maybe some are, in, are, are entrepreneurs. That is okay. But what's missing is being able to pull out within your work, what is the unifying transformation or the thing that's common to all of these different people that you can focus on that wherever they're at, they can say, yeah, that's me right? So it's not focusing on that singular transformation and just kind of being like, it's a hodgepodge of people and, and different things that we're going to do and not figuring out how you can unify that. I think that's so, a really good principle for like anything that we write is the more specific mm -hmm. you are, like even if you're like, I am being dangerously specific right now, <laughs> um, the more yeah. specific you are, it actually helps people to relate to it more than just speaking in generalities and broad terms because People can, when we're so specific, people can see, feel, smell, taste, whatever we're talking about, and then they see themselves in that same experience. So 
I totally yeah. agree with you. And I love just like, I love the concept of honing in on that one unifying thread. Like my favorite is, oh, my client could be anyone. <laughs> it's like, yes, I understand. <laughs> I understand it could be anyone, but let's figure out what makes all those anyone's the same kind of person. <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. And the other one, and this is this is just like a technical thing for me. It's, and this is, this goes for whether you're writing your sales page and designing it in an actual web builder or you're selling from a Google doc, but it's not the, the pet peeve is not thinking about the user flow, the flow and hierarchy of the information, mm. right? A sales page is not a blog post, right? Like it's not just like wall of text explaining the thing and explaining what we're going to be doing, right? Um, it's There's actual form and flow to a successful sales page, right? And so when you approach writing sales pages, you need to be able to organize the information. And and I, I actually, when I write sales pages, it's it's an art, yes, but it's also very much a, a formula for me, right? And so I separate the thoughts, the, the movements, the concepts throughout the page. And that's how your user is going to flow through it as well. Like they want to be able to break up that information and to be able to digest it and then say, okay, got that next point. Right. So not thinking about the user experience and not separating out that hierarchy of information is also a real missed opportunity that a lot of people don't they don't think about, especially if they're just not copywriters or trying to like DIY their, their copywriting, which is great. I actually, I actually have this as a philosophy. I think that everyone should start writing their own copy first before they hire it out. So that's just my own personal stance. Ooh, interesting. <laughs> so. Sales pages, I'll admit, are like totally not for me. I do not love them. <laughs> um, so I, Oh, I love Yeah. Them. <laughs> I was going to say, I love that you love them because it's just so interesting how we all have that wheelhouse. Um, but yeah, you have to give people like that moment to breathe. I, I know we've all seen the pages where it's just like, like you said, it's like a blog post, you know, with no rhyme or reason as to what I'm reading next. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I've been dying to ask you this one. Um, when let's say like, whether it be someone's program or their social media presence or their email list, let's just say like the engagement is just kind of like crickets. How do you help people to start kind of like re-engaging with their people? Like what are some of the first steps we can take when, you know, we've maybe, maybe it's because we've been avoiding our social media for a really, really long time. Um, and then you notice when you, when you get back on, it's a slow <laughs> uphill climb. So what are some things that we can start doing to like really recreate that engagement with our, I'm going to call them audience, but I don't love that term. So <laughs> with your people, yeah, with yeah. your people. Yes. So step number one is actually assessing why the engagement is low. You know, yes, there's a lot of people I'm having conversations with right now, um, let's say prime example, Facebook groups, you know, Facebook has gone, undergone many, many changes over the past, you know, forever, but especially the past six months. Right. And so uh, people across the board are, are telling me people aren't seeing their group content. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's waning a little bit. And even though they are posting, 
right? And then there's some people who are like, I just took a break from my Facebook group and now I'm coming back. And it's kind of like, where are the people? <laughs> I see them that they're still, they're still in this group, but where are they? Right? So really step one is getting clear on what's actually going on with the engagement. So um, looking at your data, whether that's, whether we're talking about your email list, whether we're talking about your social channels, you know, looking at the data, looking at when people are engaging with your stuff, getting really honest with yourself to say, okay, what, what, what have I done? <laughs> like, where, where am I in all of this? Right. Sometimes it's not us, but sometimes it is. We are humans, you know, no, you know, we're all living through a pandemic and many, many changes in our society. So, you know, there's that as well. But Step one is evaluating. Step two um, would be actually taking the time to connect, right? So, and there's two, there's kind of two ways about of doing this, right? So if you're creating social content, actually putting out content that directly asks people to do something, whether that's a comment to leave your, um, leave a, a, an idea or a thought in, in a post, right? Or asking them to engage on a live video, right? Or with your email list, what I like to do is I like to send out an email that acknowledges the elephant in the room if I haven't emailed them in a while and say, hey, you know, it's been a minute since I've been in your inbox, but I come bearing gifts, right? Download this super useful, juicy tool or something that really, like people really, really need that helps give them a quick win, I send that to them and I, I make them, not make them, but I suggest to them lovingly that they, you know, take action and download it, open it up, right? And you could do the same thing on your social channels, give that gift, right? But the, essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them to take a specific action. And then step number three would be following up. So whether you're on your social channels, if you see someone's commented you see someone has downloaded your your free gift, that quick win, follow up with them in your group or on in a comment on your social channels or, or via email, right? You can segment your email list to say, send a specific email to people who, who clicked on that downloadable, right? And and follow up with their progress. You know, send that, send that message, make that comment, ask them questions. And the more that you engage and you get people responding back. And the more that you take that intentional time to be helpful, be, be, provide value without expectation right out the gate, you'll continue to um, rebuild those connections, reestablish that trust, and then it'll just grow from there. So bottom line, be a real human, focus on the connection, give value without expectation. Yeah. I love that you added that following up piece because I mean, I see this a lot where people just like post and then never respond to any of their comments. Um, but I also yeah. think that when it, you know, when it comes to like thanking somebody for downloading your, your PDF or whatever it is, it really personalizes it. Um, and I think even as a podcaster, like when somebody leaves me a review, I need to start like you know, a lot of times I know who they are. Um, I need to thank yeah. them. And so I love that. It's just like really personalizing it and, and opening up the conversation. Yep. So hundred yep. percent. And yes, it all comes back to being a real human. Um, yes. <laughs> all right. So are there any questions that I did not ask you that you wish I'd asked you? Oh my goodness. We covered so much in this interview. <laughs> we really did. And I feel like it was very fast. I'm like, wow, someone talks as fast as I do. This is amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it, it, in my Southern state, I live here in Texas. It's, um, 
kind of gets me in trouble sometimes because people are like, what did you say? <laughs> like, sorry, I'll slow it down. But no, we covered a lot and it was good stuff. That is so funny. We lived in North Carolina and I always felt like I was talking too fast for people too. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, nope, we're soul sisters there. All right, good. Um, okay, so share, why don't you share with us any, um, like any special offers that you have that give people resources in this area? And then also like how they can find you and connect with you online. Awesome. So my website is thecopyhouse.com. That's H-A-U-S. And we're on the social medias on Facebook and Instagram at The Copy House is where you can find us. Also, we have a free Facebook group called The Copy Community where we talk all things authentic, ethical, and profitable marketing and messaging. And so also the, the, the thing that I want people to, to take me up on, if this has resonated with you, this idea of, of anti-sleaze, of ethical marketing, I have a free training. There's no pitch on it. It's literally just information um, about what it means to be an ethical marketer and some expanded ways that we can um, write copy and messaging uh, from, a, from a perspective of not... Uh, not manipulating people. And so um, it's called the anti-sleaze method. And if you go to thecopyhouse.com, again, that's H-A-U-S um, slash anti-sleaze, S-L-E-A-Z-E, you can access that training. It's just a quick opt-in, access the training and uh, start writing and creating your messaging more ethically and authentically. That sounds awesome. Um, I'm going to do both of those things, join your Facebook group and get that. And I'll make sure that all of those links are in the show notes for everyone too. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mia, so much for joining me and for having this conversation. It was really fun. And I hope that, I, I mean, I know that people are going to get a lot of t takeaways. I hope that they start to implement some of these things and that we can like, as a society, lower everyone's cortisol levels in our marketing. For sure. There's enough stress in the world. So thank you so much for having me. To learn more about She Built This and to join our community and get involved for yourself, visit www.shebuiltthis.org.